array of voices and sounds from Cambridge and beyond. Presented by me, Olivia Hilton Pennant. And me, Matt Evan Green. Loading this week's sound. Please hold. They cannot be used accurately to make judgments about the overall grading of students. They should only be seen as what they are, learning tools. There had to be another reason why the government chose not to prioritize or act on that advice. Seeking out our neighbors across any expanse of Earth. Ready to connect you to this week's sounds. First up on Switchboard this week, it's Cambridge and Beyond, the segment where we take a look at one big story in Cambridge news and explore how this relates to events beyond the university by speaking to some of the people behind the headlines. On today's episode, we delve into recent findings centred around the impact that the coronavirus pandemic is having on university applicants. Exams will not take place as planned in May and June, though we will make sure that pupils get the qualifications they need and deserve for their academic career. That was the voice of Prime Minister Boris Johnson addressing the nation on March 18th, 2020. With schools closed and A-level exams cancelled, The pandemic has brought with it an added layer of uncertainty for thousands of students around the country. Since then, the government has announced that students who are due to sit exams this summer will receive a calculated grade with teachers using evidence such as results from mock exams and non-exam assessments. To ensure that calculated grades are fair, they will be moderated by exam regulators such as Ofqual. In spite of this, the latest Sutton Trust impact brief found that 48% of applicants felt the pandemic would have a negative impact on their chances of getting into their first choice university. And 72% felt that the new grading system of calculated grades was less fair than that of in a normal year. We caught up with one mature offer holder who wished to remain anonymous to find out about some of the unique challenges that the pandemic has presented to them. I am a private candidate, so I was with I registered to sit my exams with a particular um, institute, you know, organisation, but they have since confirmed that they can't um, rank order private candidates. One of the things they've advised us is to re-register with another centre. That I'm not confident about that process. I, I really not. I know, you know, much time and consideration has gone into, you know, come out with a solution for us private candidates, but I don't feel particularly confident about that process in itself because I would have to find a, a new centre, submit work that I've already done, um, participate in an online meeting with members from that centre, and then I, you know, may have to also do supervised work under their condition, in their, you know, in their sort of setting. Um, in addition to that, there are additional costs involved, which is something that, you know, students have to, you know, consider. I studied with the intention of being assessed via exams, not this process so and because it's the first time that i'll be you know this process is being used i'm not sure how it's going to work out for all of us private candidates saying that um in a recent email from my college um there was you know something to take great to take away from that where there is a possibility of me avoiding that altogether where students are given calculated grades that prevent them from being able to take up their place this coming Michaelmas, they can opt to undertake replacement exams and defer their offer to 2021. I asked our mature offer holder whether this would be a viable option for them. Um, I certainly wouldn't rule out going to university altogether. Um, deferral would not be ideal for me in the sense that I don't wish to 
you know, put going to university off for another year. Um, I'm ready to go to university now. And I think taking a year out as a mature student is slightly different than taking a year out when you're a school leaver. Um, so I wouldn't, I also would not consider going to another university altogether um, because the advantage of, you know, Cambridge is that they have the mature colleges. And, you know, it's my understanding that, you know, the structure and support system that they have in these mature colleges for mature students is, you know, best suited to my um, progress, not only academically, but as an individual as well. So for those reasons, I wouldn't go elsewhere, you know, in, you know, I wouldn't say worst case scenario, because there's nothing worse about waiting for another year to go to an institution that you've always wanted to go to, um, to get into the, the, the line of work that you've always wanted to do. Um, it would just, I would just have to wait another year. And how would you say that Cambridge fares compared to other universities in terms of staying in touch and keeping connected at this difficult time? There is, you know, a, a consensus amongst the students themselves that we have been quite well looked after in that sense with communication, um, as far as communication is concerned. And from conversations that I've had with other offer holders, this has not been the case. You know, other than, you know, information put on at the beginning of the crisis, um, it, it doesn't appear that um, students have been consulted or kept informed in the same way. Um, I'm not equipped to comment on every single university, but certainly from the conversations and feedback that I've seen from or heard from other students, that seems to be the case. Um, so I think as a university, I think they're doing a, a great job in terms of keeping students updated, helping students look forward. I mean, you know, I received an email from the president of our college welcoming us, which was really nice to um, receive. And like I said, it just keeps you looking forward, especially while we're all in lockdown. Concerns around the impact that calculated grades will have on students from black and minority ethnic backgrounds have also been raised by the likes of the Equality and Human Rights Commission and race equality think tank, the Running Me Trust. We spoke to Tammy Briggs, Access Officer for the CUSI BME campaign, to discuss this further. Predicted grades place BME students at a disadvantage. Um, harmful stereotypes surrounding black and minority ethnic students result in teachers often under predicting grades. Like research conducted in 2011 found that black applicants had the lowest predicted grade accuracy at 39% compared to white students who had the highest of 53%. It should be acknowledged that in such unprecedented times, there can be no perfect solution to, as to how to grade students. However, calculated grades are an inaccurate measure of any student's capability. Ofcore is encouraging colleges and um, schools to take into account evidence such as non-examination assessments, homework assignments and mock examinations when grading students. Some of these forms of assessment are integral parts of the learning process. However, they cannot be used accurately to make judgments about the overall grading of students. They should only be seen as what they are, learning tools, ways for students to consolidate their knowledge and constructively organize their revision. These assessment can give, they can give no indication of how a student will perform in, in exam conditions. And students, especially students on an upward trajectory may not have reached their full potential 
before examinations. So all these forms of um, assessment cannot indicate the end product of a student's overall learning. We also spoke to Tammy about some of the initiatives that the BME campaign are running to engage with offer holders at this time. We have a Facebook BME group chat for offer holders and um, a Facebook group so they can like ask their questions about university life, a lot of the open days and um, ways for students to interact with the colleges have been cancelled. So we have tried to like um, give um, current students and prospective students the platform to interact being mediated by the BME campaign. The next sound on Switchboard this week is a piece commissioned by my co-producer Olivia, submitted and read by Jack Chelman, produced for radio by myself, with music kindly provided by Patrick Fitzgerald, so a very collaborative process. The piece is titled, Craft Scissors and Carrots. I'm following a haircut over FaceTime. In my new life of insularity, these calls from family and friends catch me in the middle of increasingly odd activities. Tonight, I'm standing over the kitchen sink when the call from my college roommate comes through. It's just after one in the morning, and I've elected to peel a solitary carrot over the trash can. I've whipped up a small vinaigrette at the bottom of an espresso cup, and I stare at the evening out the window as I dunk indulgently into the mix. Victoria's call interrupts the introduction to embroidery video I've got playing from my phone on the counter. I'm going to show you how to thread a needle, tie a knot, and also how to start a stitch and tie in a knot to finish a stitch. We're going to be... Mmm, I answer through a mouthful of carrot. So we're doing it, she says. Victoria props up her iPhone, and I can see that she's wielding a pair of craft scissors behind the head of her boyfriend, AJ. She's calling from her apartment in Washington, D.C., and I peer at her living room from across the Atlantic in Cambridge. Victoria's got her hair tied back in a bun, and she stares at the top of AJ's scalp with a look of stoic regret. They are both in profile to me, but I can see AJ roll one eye, whale-like, over toward the iPhone. He gives me a sympathetic smile. Sorry you have to see me like this. What's the plan? I'm not mincing words. The situation's way too serious for that. I dunk once, twice, into the espresso cup. I found a YouTube video. Victoria says. Haven't watched it. We're buzzing the side. As she speaks, AJ grabs a pair of clippers from off screen and holds them, humming, in the air in front of him. I thrust twice toward the screen with the carrot, glad to have been called in as a consultant. I'd take a four on the sides, then taper down to a two. Victoria's nodding, she concurs, but AJ's not wasting any time. Sitting up straight, he begins to make wide lasso motions with the hand holding the clippers, bringing them slowly out and then back in again to buzz off small strips of hair. Victoria coughs twice into the crook of her elbow. I dreamed of coughing last night. Victoria reminds me of it, that other form of FaceTime, 
dialing into dreams of a dry, persistent hack. It had felt inevitable. And then this morning, I lived it out, the dream, standing in the bathroom and sputtering for a few seconds before clearing my throat and collecting myself. My mind keeps a catalog, these days, of every point of contact in the previous 24 hours. I browsed while I brushed my teeth, the doorknob, the shopping cart, the canned corn and chickpeas. Every surface is the rough side of a matchbox. Every touch could spark something serious. What do you think? Victoria asks. I pop the last piece of carrot into my mouth. Mmm. She makes a few final snips, and I forget again about unhappy dreams. It is one of the great surprises of social distancing, that this interruption to an embroidery lesson will linger for far longer than any half-remembered fears, that as we decide collectively to go without the sun, we seem to be sinking our roots deeper into the soil, seeking out our neighbors across any expanse of earth. AJ groans from off-screen, and Victoria flashes a triumphant thumbs-up at the phone. Up next, it's Corona Board, where we take a deeper look at some of the ethical considerations and socio-political implications of the pandemic. To do this, Corona Board connects you with some of the most familiar coronavirus news stories, but from a variety of different angles. This week, we explore what it really means when a government says it's following the science. There's no such thing as the science, uh, which, is a, which is a key lesson. If you hear a politician say, we're following the science, then what that means is they, they don't really understand what science is. There isn't such a thing as the science. That was Professor Brian Cox speaking on The Andrew Marr Show a couple of weeks ago. So why has the UK government claimed at every turn that it is not being led by science, but the science in its response to COVID-19? My name is Jana Bacevic. Uh, I am a postdoctoral research fellow uh, at the University of Cambridge. I have an affiliation with both the Faculty of Education and the Department of Sociology. Um, I work mostly on social theory, sociology of knowledge and philosophy of social science and all the different questions that fall within that. So we're speaking to you because we saw the article you'd written in The Guardian titled There's No Such Thing as Just Following the Science, Coronavirus Advice is Political. In the article, you say this idea of following the science is partly redundant, really, partly due to the fact that there's no such thing as the best science available, as you put it. And a lot of people, I think, would be quite surprised by that statement. And I was just wondering what exactly you you mean when you say that. I was primarily trying to point out or draw attention to the fact that the way science is presented when it is presented as part of justification for policies, it often has relatively little to do with the way scientists go about doing science. 
Now, that is in and of itself not very surprising. Most scientists are, in fact, very open about the fact that science actually entails a lot of doubt, a lot of questioning, a lot of disagreement. And I think we all agree that science actually profits from that. But on the other hand, when politicians and policymakers use science as justification, that kind of science is always something that they choose to prioritize which is not obviously saying that that science is somehow less truthful than other kinds of science. It obviously isn't saying that science is or some of the elements of science are uh, entirely relative, but it does serve to point out that the way that science is presented in political and public discourse, and that includes the media, is political. Yeah, because you, you also say that what policymakers choose to prioritise at these particular moments is a matter of political judgment. Um, what, what exactly do you mean by that as well? I might want to answer this by referring to my own experience. So I used to work as a policy advisor to a set of governments and international organisations. And I was obviously asked to do this as someone who was a researcher and academic. So I was drawing on my professional knowledge. But on the other hand, I realised very early on that the kind of advice policy advisors are asked to provide often has to do with policy, what policymakers have already decided they would like to do. And even if not, it certainly has to do with the things they have decided are entirely out of the question. So to me, the obvious question was observing the UK government's strategy in relation to the coronavirus, and especially observing their change of strategy um, after the results of the study done by Neil Ferguson and his colleagues at the Imperial College were published, what made them suddenly discover this study? Because as I mentioned in the, uh, in the Guardian piece, and as the Times actually had reported a couple of days prior to that, first modelling that did indicate that uh, COVID-19 was highly contagious, so had a very high transmission rate, that was performed by Ferguson and his team was presented to the government on the 24th of January. So that was what I meant, right? The science has already been there. There had to be another reason why the government chose not to prioritise or act on that advice at that point, and did choose to act on that advice later on. I was also going to ask about the depoliticization of the climate crisis in many sectors. This idea that it's simply a matter of following the science rather than a matter of socioeconomic political kind of will. Do you think there's a parallel between that and the way in which the government claims to be kind of simply following the science in its response to the COVID-19 pandemic? Absolutely. Apart from the fact that, um, at least from the point at which the government did institute a lockdown and social distancing measure, measures, um, they were doing the right thing. When it comes to climate change, they're still not doing the right thing. So, But yes, in a broader sense, I think there is absolutely um, the relationship between using science as a justification, but also using the absence of certainty as justification. Because in the same way in which uh, climate skeptics and climate denialists uh, used to, you know, sort of use 
uh, often isolated snippets of data or evidence in order to argue that the science of climate change is really not all that clear in the past 20 or 30 years. In the same way, some of the unknowns, especially at the first stage of the coronavirus pandemic, or basically before it was even pronounced a pandemic, were used to justify lack of agency, so inaction, the reason, you know, the government's not uh, not acting in certain ways. And I think we need to recognize this fundamental ambiguity of knowledge, certainty and uncertainty, because often it is really not as if we know exactly or can predict exactly what's going to happen. It's more about deciding whether, under conditions of uncertainty, we want to act in ways that, say, prioritize protecting the population, protecting the elderly, protecting the vulnerable, or whether we, for instance, want to prioritize protecting the economy. Next up on Switchboard this week, is a special segment dedicated to the launch of the 2020 edition of Varsity's sister publication, The Maze. It's being released next week, and previous guest editors include Stephen Fry and Zadie Smith, and the publication is apparently renowned for kickstarting the latter's career. But as someone who's happy to admit I haven't read The Maze before, I hadn't heard of it until fairly recently, I thought I'd have a chat with this year's editor and deputy editor, to see if they could convince me to give it a go this year. So I'm Rebecca and I'm the deputy editor of this year's Maze Anthology. I'm Zoe and I'm the editor this year. <laughs> I thought I'd just first ask um, kind of what, what is the Maze really? So the Maze is the student um, anthology that's been published for, I think this is the 28th issue this year, so since 1992, of Oxbridge writing and art. And it started out as just poetry and prose, but has now like now includes photography and art as well. Yeah, and I guess it's just a, a cool showcase sort of, of um, on like a wider scale of what the students are doing, what they're producing. Yeah, we're unthemed as well. So um, it's quite nice just to do like an annual anthology of just everything. And we get loads of submissions. Um, so this year we got uh, over 700 submissions. That must be quite a kind of arduous process, like sifting through like hundreds and hundreds of, I'm sure, very good quality pieces, but still like a lot nonetheless. It was a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It took the whole of Lent term um, to get through all the submissions. Um, we were kind of having like weekly meetings, all the poetry, prose and art subcommittee having meetings, looking through all the poems and they'd print out all the poems. And they'd be all over the varsity office, like just piles of them. And it was <laughs> very exciting. Wicked. So, yeah, I was just going to ask about the kind of makeup of this year's edition, because the maze is most well known for its written content, but it does also include photography and visual art. And I'm aware that you wanted to kind of elevate the visual side of things um, this year. So I'm just wondering how you've done that, how you how you went about doing that. So a big part of that is not just kind of the art submissions, but we tried to sort of play around with what we could do in terms of layout as well and kind of make it more visually appealing as, yeah, as like a sort of object as well as like its subject matter. What kind of stuff can people expect? to find in this year's edition? We get a lot of submissions that are emotional um, and it seems as if it's really nice to know that people are doing a lot of creative writing to kind of deal with their own emotions. Um, but I always prefer the ones that are 
funny um so this year we've got a few pieces that um like poems and stuff that are funny as well so that's something that I really like to look for yeah more funny kind of lighthearted things and things that just don't take themselves too seriously which I think is really important for like an Oxbridge anthology to do so yeah the the anthology isn't centered around any particular theme but um I'm wondering if you've spotted any particular patterns in the makeup of the submissions you received this year we got a lot of photos and like pieces in general but primarily photos about like old people which I think is really interesting because it is like a student demographic and then obviously like that's sort of there's been like another twist on that I think just from like looking at it now from a like quarantine perspective there's little pieces like there's a photo of um someone in like plastic gloves that's in one of the first pages of the book I think the very first page actually which now just means something really really different than it did when we selected it which I just think is super interesting yeah last year a lot of the short stories were to do with um grandparents dying I think it's interesting to look at it now in the coronavirus time but it kind of is interesting that you can read something into it that wasn't there originally um, when you're looking back in it uh, in a different context and we have another uh, photo of a group of old ladies and they're looking at um, a big art piece on the walls it's one of those kind of gallery pieces of people looking at something in the gallery but these old ladies are looking at um, a photo of a graveyard on the wall so yeah that piece obviously has I mean I suppose the original meaning is kind of deepened by the current situation. I'm gonna have to buy a copy now <laughs> I've never I haven't read it before I must say but yeah um you've got one more reader when can people get hold of this and how? So printers are open now just via our website um and then we're launching so we've sent it all to the printer and we're publishing on the 15th so grab your coffee. <laughs> and you can head straight to lemaysanthology.co.uk to grab your copy now but first to give you a flavour of the kind of things you can expect to find in the maze this year Ben Phillips sent us this recording of a poem they wrote which is featured in this year's edition this is a poem called White Pawn F2 uh, it has an epigraph from Piers Plowman which is by William Langland, which goes, Thus beggars and barons at debate are an oft. And the pawn, whose small step is catastrophe, writ large, creeps unsurely from dark to light, from nothing to action, threatens the black bishop, quakes at the queen, is ignored by both. Some small function in some small reptilian brain tells the pawn that this is the wrong move. This move is wrong because it ends the game too early. This move is wrong because it ends the game with no flourish, without the pounding of big feet. Closing out this episode is The Plug, keeping you in the loop with the hottest events happening across the Cambridge community over the next week. Friday, May 9th, between 9 and 10pm, head over to the Clarence Facebook page for a quarantine edition of the ever-popular Clarence. 
The third instalment of Solidarity College Cambridge's Science Reading Group is happening this Saturday, May 9th at 6pm. This week, the group are discussing colonial history and post-colonial science studies by Samantha. For a copy of the text and to find out more, head over to the Solidarity College Cambridge Facebook page. Next, it's Monolaughs, a comedy show featuring some of Cambridge's funniest one-person monologues and one-person sketches. Visit adctheatre.com forward slash mono on Saturday, May 9th at 7pm for an hour of harmless fun. Cambridge University Women in Business kick off their virtual book club on Monday, May 9th with a discussion of the podcast, Skimmed from the Couch. To sign up for the event, visit the Camweb Facebook page. Finally, on Tuesday, May 12th, Wilson College's Humanity Society are joined by Dr. Stephen Walford for a webinar on music, sound and public spaces in post-colonial Algeria. You can register for the webinar via the event on the College's Facebook page. Thanks to everyone who contributed to Switchboard this week. If you're interested in getting involved, please join the Contributors Group, which you can find on our Facebook page. Please subscribe wherever you're listening to this. And if you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating. It would mean a lot. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for Varsity Switchboard. Switchboard is produced by Olivia Hilton Pennant and Matt Evan Green. Sound from Cambridge and beyond. Your call will now be disconnected.